Good morning, Elevation. My name is Graham Watson, and I want to tell you a quick story about when I was a young boy. I've been in church my whole life, and I can remember sitting in church back when we used slide projectors, where you had the clear sheets that were projected up before PowerPoint, and somebody had to physically switch the pieces of clear uh, plastic sheets so that the song lyrics would change with us from different pages. And so I remember sitting as a young boy in church and um, singing the songs with my family, and every so often when we got to the end of a page, the lyrics would have to be switched, and this shadowy hand would appear at the top of this giant screen in church, switching the lyrics. And I had no idea there were people at the front doing that, or I didn't make the connection. And as a young boy, I had no doubt in my mind that it was God's hand uh, switching the lyrics for us in church, uh, that God was very active and present, and in fact was leading our worship by switching the lyrics for us. There was something in me as a very small child that that just made sense. Uh, which is quite a statement of faith that I just believed with conviction that that was what was happening. Um, and I don't remember when I realized that it was people who were switching the lyrics, but at some point doubt started to enter into my belief. My beliefs were not as solid as um, God operating slide projectors. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're looking at a crisis of doubt. This month we've been looking at a variety of experiences, loss, death, and this week we're going to look at doubt. Um, there's a variety of characters in the Gospel of John who all experience one of these sort of crisis moments um, in regards to the resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at doubt through the most tokenized doubting character in the Bible, the Apostle Thomas, who you may know as Doubting Thomas. And so there's this moment that we've had read to us in scripture this morning about Thomas, and I want us to look at his whole story in some detail. I think it'll help us reflect on our own experiences of doubt in faith. And I also think it'll be important um, for us to touch later on a group of stubborn dwarves from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, um, but we'll get to them a little bit later. I want us to look at Thomas and his experience of doubt as we relate it to our own crisis of doubt this morning. So Thomas has a bad rap as the doubter. Uh, we don't know a lot about him in the Bibles. Thomas is mentioned in the first three books of the Bible, the, or of the New Testament, the Synoptic Gospels. He's mentioned there by name, but none of the authors there give him any speaking lines. Uh, he gets three chances to speak in the Gospel of John. And I want to take us through each of those, as I think they will give us a small glimpse into his character and this crisis of doubt that he undergoes that I think we can also often undergo. So our first chance to hear Thomas speak in the Bible is in John 11, verse 16. So the story around this is that Lazarus, one of Jesus' close friends, has just died, and Jesus wants to go to Lazarus's family. He wants to mourn. He wants to be there. And Lazarus lives in an area where just earlier in the story, people, um, leaders, had tried to stone Jesus to death, uh, throwing rocks at him until he died. Surprise, surprise, um, when you stir up a movement and try to subvert what uh, the powers that be, uh, they may try to kill you. And this is what happens to Jesus throughout his whole ministry. And so his disciples are trying to dissuade Jesus from going back to this region where Lazarus's family is. They don't think it's a good idea because they think he's going to get killed and they might get killed along with him. Jesus uh, chooses just to enter boldly and to continue to go back to this place of aggression and persecution. And so in verse 16, in chapter 11, 
we get Thomas speaking for the first time. He's the only one who kind of responds to Jesus choosing to go back into danger. And it says this, it says, so Thomas called the twin. I have no idea why he was called a twin. There are a variety of theories that you can look up later on your own time, if you would like. So Thomas called the twin. He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, so Thomas is the disciple who calls the others to a death following their leader. He is perhaps just a realist. He is resigned that he realistically could die if they go back to this region with Jesus because of the oppression they might face. But he continues on, um, which makes us, I think, question how he gets later in the gospel to a place of doubt. What happened to this man in just a few chapters, a short period of time, where he had resigned himself to die following Jesus? He has deep faith. He goes from a faith willing to die for Jesus to later not believing, or even daring to believe in the resurrection, as the passage we had read for us this morning says. Is he just a cynical realist, like just resigning himself to death, or is there something more here? I wonder if we could assume that actually Thomas perhaps has some of the deepest, the, excuse me, the deepest faith of all of Jesus' early disciples in this chapter. That perhaps that faith is part of what causes his doubt later. I want us to just hold on to this idea. So the second of three encounters we have with Thomas uh, comes in chapter 14. Jesus is teaching his disciples in very abstract terms about his father's house. And he's preparing a place for them and they are all confused. And Jesus claims that they know the way he is going. So in verse uh, 3 to 5, chapter 14, Jesus is speaking. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I imagine frustration in Thomas, the same frustrations that I often feel during Jesus' more abstract teachings. Thomas seems to be a bit of a realist. He knows there was likely death going back to Lazarus, and he is now frustrated Jesus, expecting them to know something that he has not explained to them very clearly. One commentator on this passage <coughs> excuse me, notes that here that Thomas questions whether it is possible for anyone who has no definite knowledge of the final goal of a journey to know the way that leads to it. I'll read that again. Thomas questions whether it is possible for anyone who has no definite knowledge of the final goal of a journey to know the way that leads to it. Faith is a trust issue. We have no definite knowledge of this journey of faith. We don't. This is a challenge for us when so much of our modern experience is based on definite knowledge, material understanding. In our modern world, love is, has been reduced to a chemical in our brain. Community, courage, justice are reduced to biological functions of some long-forgotten tribal mindset. They've all become definitive things. And so faith calls us into something deeper and immeasurable in many ways. Thomas and us often don't know what to do with this faith thing. 
that's being asked of us. It seems unfair to ask us on a journey when we can't know the destination. And I have to think that this is probably where doubt started for our dear friend, Thomas. He had utter resolve a few chapters earlier, even to the point of death. And it's broken through the intangibility of the faith being asked of him. I think this is the case for some of us when I look at Christians through my life and my own faith journey. I think for some of us who have deep faith, a fundamental foundation of our life, when that rigid foundation falls, I think sometimes the, you know, the crisis can be even more devastating. Can you think about your first moments of doubt? When I think back on my own life, I think some of the, the first moments that really had me thinking through this faith that I'd kind of just grown up in um, was conversations with people I loved who did not love Jesus like I did. These were good people who, I, who were good the way I thought all Christians should be. You know, was, I started to question, was this the only way to a deep and beautiful life? For me, and I want you to look back and think about, is this applied to you as well? It was, it was, was it an encounter with the Bible? Was that a moment, right, of crisis? Was, was your childhood experience of the Bible one of definite knowledge? Where all these stories happened exactly as they were written? As deeply material and rigorous as the scientific method that our modern world worships as a god? When the good book could not stand up to good analysis, did you begin to doubt its legitimacy? Have you put it down years ago? Afraid that if you open it up, you might lose the faith you have left. I think these are real moments that a lot of us have gone through or are going through right now. Doubts around our faith when it's not definite. So I think if Thomas began here, did he begin to doubt Jesus' legitimacy? There's now new parts of this faith that he can't understand. Earlier, he was willing to die and give up his life for Jesus, and now he's just not so sure. Things are just not as clear as perhaps they used to be. And we have to wonder how long this festered within him, becoming a crisis of doubt. I want to make a distinction here, right? I believe that doubt is actually a really healthy part of growing in our faith and deepening our ongoing relationship with a God who is very much alive, who created the universe and the systems of rationality that I really crave to stay in. But when we cannot air our doubts or work through them in healthy community or learn to live without knowing that final destination, that final goal, I think crisis can set in and that's what we're talking about. Especially if we feel alone in all of that. And so Thomas doubts. He's in a crisis of doubts as we encounter him at the end of John in the passage read for us this morning. Jesus has allegedly appeared in the flesh after they all watched him die for many slow, long hours at the hands of their own militarized state government. And now he's appearing alive? Thomas can't believe this. Perhaps he's done. Perhaps he's, you know, watched his belief in the coming kingdom of God die on a cross with Jesus. Or perhaps it is all still too abstract for him to work with. Nothing that dies comes back to life. It doesn't. Death is definite. And we know that. That's a rigorous, definitive fact. <laughs> Thomas is paralyzed by his doubts. 
He's willing to believe only if he can use multiple senses to examine this claim. He needs proof. And we have to hand it to the other disciples at this point. Um, because before, when Thomas doubts and he claims that he needs this proof to believe in Jesus, and before we get that proof, eight days go by. That's what we're told, that eight, eight days later, Jesus shows up. And we'll get there in a sec. But let's try to sit in that eight days for a moment. Let's try to get in the other disciples' heads for a moment. So a few days earlier, they've watched the leader of their movement die, their Lord Jesus, whom they love. He was betrayed by one of the closest 12 followers he had who fell away from believing, Judas. And they're worried now. Is their movement going to continue? What happens? We've had this experience. Are the authorities going to come after us? Uh, what are we doing here? And now, amongst their midst is Thomas, another one of those closest 12 who has said that he is, he doesn't believe. He is he is not part of, of their fellowship anymore in the same way that he's really on board for the mission going forward. And rather than see him as a danger or a possible threat, they do not expel him from their midst. They keep him close. He's with them in fellowship. And when people think differently than me or when they challenge my faith and my beliefs, the simplest solution and easiest one for me to come to is often just to push them away or stop hanging out with them or stop engaging with them. <laughs> it's challenging to be in conversation and life with people who doubt something that we hold very dear, as I imagine the disciples of Thomas were during those eight days. The disciples could have sent him away. It would have been safer. It would have been a lot more comfortable. But they keep him in their midst. And we need to do the same with the doubters, the cynics, the realists in our midst as well. It's hard to hold on to them, but we need to. Thomas is trapped in this crisis of doubt. He cannot bring himself to believe in this. Perhaps his faith has been waning for a while. Perhaps yours has too. Some days I feel like this crisis is around me. I struggle daily to know how to live a Christian faith of substance in Canada in 2020. What, what, how do we interpret these things and legitimately like, live them out in Canada? I struggle with knowing if I even really want to. I mean, Jesus has a lot of challenging things. The life he advocates for is not comfortable. And sometimes I just really doubt whether it's worth engaging in. I struggle a lot sometimes to believe the kingdom of God will come. It has been 2,000 years. And 2020 is a mess. Things seem worse this year than they have been before. And I, I struggle with what my Bible is what it says, what to do with it. It's not a very scientific text. And this is where doubt can become a paralysis. When I think we can become in a crisis of doubt. When we allow our doubts to become the defining feature of our faith and our response to life. When we are afraid to act and commit to any belief, because we know that some of our beliefs have changed from what they were or what they may be. When we refuse to believe that resurrection is possible, that it could happen in our lives and in our world and in the people we believe to be causing all the problems, we start missing out on life, a faith 
because we don't know where the definitive end is. Commenting, arguing, staying still, rooted in a lack of understanding, is a lot safer than believing something we can't definitively know. And that's where I think it's important to bring in these Narnian dwarfs that show up in the last battle. This uh, buildup for this analogy is going to be a little long, but I think it'll be really helpful for us. It's been helpful for me in the last few weeks, so just bear with me as I try to sum up a great book quickly. So C.S. Lewis uh, wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and a lot of the, the, the seven books he wrote have been sort of um, an allegory of Christian faith. And like so many of us during this quarantine, I have been rereading a lot of my old favorite books because I can't go to the library until recently to get new books to read. So I reread the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the last book, which is called The Last Battle, when Narnia is coming to a close, there is a challenging scene that I have been finding myself in a little bit too much. And I want to share that with you. So here's the buildup. So just hold on with me. So near the end of this story, many of the characters have been fighting in this last battle and they are thrown into this stable. It's a prison meant to hold them there where they will die. But for our main characters, as they enter this stable, they realize that the, the door is sort of a magical door, and when they enter this stable, rather than being in a dark room full of straw and the smell of animals like a barn, it's actually a paradise. It's some of the most beautiful landscape they've ever seen, and it's far bigger than the area they just came through. Okay, little abstract, stay with me, read Narnia. It is, it is great. Um, and they find themselves in this beautiful area of trees with good smells that they've never encountered. It's this incredible paradise, not a dirty stable. Uh, except for this group of dwarves. These dwarves have been skeptical of any, throughout the book, they've been skeptical of any higher power involved in Narnia. Throughout the book, they tried to make sure that above all else, they were not tricked into believing anything that could be false. And so when they are thrown into this stable, that is so much more than a stable, um, all they can perceive is darkness, straw, perhaps the typical smells one associates with a barn. And after trying to convince them otherwise, with no luck, Aslan, the great lion, the creator of Narnia, the son of the emperor, has this to say about their state. While everyone else sees the world around them as a bright, beautiful place, all these dwarves can see and experience is the conditions of a dark stable. Aslan says to them, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison. And they are so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. They're so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Our doubts can become a prison when we are so afraid of being taken in that we cannot be taken out into a place that is far better than sitting in darkness. How do we get out? How did Thomas get out? So eight awkward days later from Thomas sort of denying that he wants uh, to believe this, that he could believe this. Uh, eight days later, Jesus appears in their midst through locked doors like a ghost would, but Jesus is in a fully solid body. And he walks right up to Thomas and he shows him the wounds Thomas claimed he needed to touch in order to believe. 
At this moment, Thomas has encountered the risen Christ, Christ who is Jesus, who was raised from the dead. And he utters for us the deepest statement of faith we hear from any of the characters in the whole Gospel of John. He says, my Lord and my God. What is going to help us get out of this trap, this darkness of doubt, when there is a crisis that imprisons us from moving forward in a belief in Jesus, is Jesus. Jesus who entered the room and made the first move, walking right up to Thomas to continue the relationship they had. At the center of this faith is not questions about how many days the world was created in or what's going to happen to who at the end of the world. At the center of this faith is a relationship we can have today with a very real and living Jesus of Nazareth, who is God's son. Thomas had claimed that he would only believe if he could actually touch Jesus' wounds, but only seeing them caused him to claim such a deep commitment to the heart of our faith. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus was a risen God. He was not a man with good teachings who died, whose ideas were expounded upon and spread by his followers in some sort of ideal cosmic Christ. Thomas knew and understand that this Jesus, this historical Jesus who he followed, is his Lord and his God. As one commentator writes, Thomas is insisting that the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith must be one and the same. Jesus acknowledges that he has believed without needing to touch the wounds, that sight was enough. And then Jesus utters a deep encouragement that is for all of us. And it's for you today. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For that is our predicament in faith. We have to believe without being able to see and touch that there was once a man who was so much more than a man who is God. And Jesus offers us a blessing in that. And I want to end this morning as John ends because the next two verses that follow is almost like he's turning it back to the reader, us. He puts the question further to us. It's like he says at the end of the chapter, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's as if to say to us, what is your response, O reader of this gospel? You, we who have not seen, do we believe? I want to pray for us as we end our time this morning, if you'll pray with me. Uh, Lord, we believe and help us with our unbelief. I find it so hard at times to wrap my head around all uh, that is asked of us in this walk with you in Christianity. Uh, God, I pray that we this week could remember a living relationship with you that you would meet us this week, that you would walk up to us, and as our call to worship says, renew our faith this morning uh, through your presence and through your ongoing work in our lives and in this world. Uh, I pray that we would have patience with one another through our doubts. We would come alongside one another in crisis uh, as we try to work through this the same way that Thomas and the apostles did so long ago. And all God's children said, Amen.